get what we can out of that. Uh, it's always helpful to us. And we need to do as much of that as we can. And I always know when I come here, there's going to be a lot of eager people eager to spend as much time as possible reading the word and even talking about it afterwards and things like that. So that's exciting and encouraging to me. And I appreciate that uh, a lot. And uh, hopefully it can be helpful to us. And uh, it's always good to, to, you know, be around others that love the Lord and His Word. Most of you, I recognize a lot of you, I don't remember your name. So if you really want me to know you by name, feel free to tell me your name every time you, I see you. Some of you are like, I know your last name or what's your first name, or I think your name says, but I'm not sure. So uh, I'm, I'm uh, good at forgetting, not too good at remembering, so uh, feel free to do that. Um, let's set the context just a second for those the three prophets we're going to look at this weekend, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. They are the three last books of the Old Testament, and they fit together in terms of the time frame, because you remember that after the nation of Israel divided, that the northern kingdom was taken into Assyrian captivity in about 722. Judah lasted about another 135 years. But finally, Nebuchadnezzar took Judah into captivity. In about 587, he destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, he, he destroyed the temple. He took the temple vessels and utensils and so forth away. Uh, took pretty much all the uh, uh, Jews away, except for a remnant that was left to just be kind of like caretakers on the land. And uh, you remember that God, through Jeremiah, had said there would be 70 years of captivity. Uh, that 70 years seems to figure best from the initial wave of captives back 20 years before with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego until about the time they were sent back. But, but the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians, the Medo-Persian coalition with Cyrus. And uh, Cyrus was letting the captured peoples go back home. And he did that. He issued a decree that any Jew who wanted to could go back to Jerusalem and could rebuild there and lived there, and nearly 50,000 went back. The historical narrative that really applies to our time period is Ezra and Nehemiah, for that matter. Uh, but especially Ezra, for what we're going to look at in uh, Haggai and, and Zechariah. So here, 50,000 of them go back, and uh, they need to rebuild Jerusalem. They need to get places to live, and particularly, they need to rebuild the house of God. And uh, so they start that. In Ezra chapter 3, they lay the foundation, and it's kind of bittersweet because it doesn't look like it's going to be as good as the first one was, but, but it's still exciting that they've uh, done this, and, and so they do, they lay the foundation. And then the enemies offer to help, <laughs> and they turn down the help, and the enemies uh, show that they uh, really were enemies because they uh, hire counselors to frustrate uh, their work and to accuse them before Cyrus, and things grind to a halt. Now, Ezra chapter 4, the most of Ezra 4 is really flash-forwards from that point to illustrate the enemy's behavior from later events. But you see in verse 24 of Ezra 4, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. It was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So for about 15 or 16 years, they just stopped. You know, they had the foundation of the temple laid, and they didn't go any farther. They met resistance, there was difficulties, but they didn't work through those. They just stopped. And in chapter 5 of Ezra, verse 1, when the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So that's kind of the historical background. Haggai and Zechariah are the two prophets that the Lord uses to stir people up and get them back to building on the temple again. So, what we're going to look at are, in fact, those prophets. Turn with, if you will, to Haggai. We're going to start with him, and then we'll move on into Zechariah's time permits tonight. Um, Haggai uh, is a, um, in, it says in verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, say. So here's the date, probably August 29th, 520. He's very specific about when this was. That's when Haggai started delivering to them the message of the Lord. We'll hear what the message is, and uh, there we'll see in a moment their response. So, Haggai chapter 1, would somebody read 2 to 5? Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Okay. So he always uses in uh, Haggai the Lord of hosts. You know, there are about 260 times that the phrase, the phrase the Lord of hosts is used in the Old Testament, about 90 of them in these three prophets. He is the Lord of hosts. Maybe you should think of the angelic armies or even of Israel's armies, but he is the great, exalted, amazing Lord. When the Lord tells us something, we better listen. And he quotes the people as to what they were saying about the rebuilding project. And they said, the time has not come. The time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. They, they don't think it's time yet to go back to working on the temple. Now, if they aren't really that concerned about getting the temple rebuilt, what does that say about them? They're not thinking about the Lord's work. They're not thinking about the Lord's work. What would happen if uh, you and your wife decide for your mother-in-law to move in and you're going to build an addition onto your home for your mother-in-law and you lay the foundation and then things come up and you just don't do it anymore. You go about 15 or 16 years and you don't build on that addition so that she can move in. What do we probably correctly conclude at that point? You don't want her in your life. You're not overly eager for her to move in. You know, if you really wanted her, you'd have probably figured out some way to get that addition built so she could move in with you. Now, when they aren't that concerned about getting God's house rebuilt, what's that saying? They're not all that concerned about God dwelling with them. They, they're not too worried about getting a house for him. And so it really shows something about whether they care about the Lord living with them or not. An unwilling heart will always find an excuse. And so their excuse is what? It's not time. Maybe that's saying we don't have time. You know, or maybe it's saying we don't have the resources yet. You know, we've got a drought and all that. We just don't have money. But whatever they're saying, it's just not a good time for us to do this. Now, how we use our time really shows what about us? Exactly, where our priorities are. And in fact, he, the Lord has noticed where their priorities are. Where are they? They've had plenty of time and resources to build their own houses and panel them nicely, get them nicely finished and looking good and all of that. So it's kind of like whose house comes first. You know, when we spend all this on ourselves and we just don't have anything for the Lord, unfortunately, well, what's that say? You know, they've got their luxury homes, but uh, the Lord's house, we just don't have anything for Him yet. It makes you wonder, with not having the time, where they found the time for their own houses. Where did they find the energy and the resources for themselves? This idea of it's not the time is mostly a cop-out. You know, you pretty much always find the time for something you really want to do, don't you? Even when you don't, you know, think about, uh, you know, most of us are pretty busy. 
if I would ask, this is the 13th of March, I wonder how many of us in these first 13 days of March, how many of us have just not found any time to eat in these first 13 days of March? Any of you just not had time to eat? From the smell of things, I don't think too many of you haven't had time to shower in the first 13 days of March. I don't have a very good nose, but uh, we probably noticed it by that time. You know, there's certain things that we just take time for. I mean, we may not have a lot of time, but some things just need to be done. So we're going to do it, whatever. It just shows you what we care about. So what does he say they need to do in verse 5? Consider your ways. You need to start thinking about what you're doing. Reappraise your priorities. You need to uh, wake up and uh, get out of your complacency. Uh, think about what you're doing. This is a wonderful passage to make us think about what we're doing. Just think about it a second. If we were to consider our ways tonight, on just this point, you know, are we giving the priority we should to the Lord, or are we saying we just can't do it? Well, you know, what? do you ever say, I just don't have time to read the Bible? You know, I'd love to, I really need to, but I just don't have time. But how many times when we say that, do we find some time to watch TV, to see a movie, to be involved with technology, to do some sports and recreation, to go to work, but I don't have any time to read the Bible. You know, I just, I just don't have time. You know, we have time to feed ourselves physically, but I, I just don't have any time to, to beat myself spiritually. I don't have any time to pray. You know, I'd love to pray, but I just don't have time. You know, we have time to communicate online. We have time to communicate on the phone. We have time to talk to people in person, but I just don't have time to talk to the Lord. What do you think the Lord thinks when he sees that? You know, we don't really value that relationship all that much when we seem to have Pretty good time to talk to nearly anybody else we care about, but the Lord we don't. I just don't have any ability to teach the gospel to people. Now we can promote our favorite ball team if I start talking against, uh, if I started talking for my favorite ball team who uh, who uh, uh, beat uh, who they beat today. Uh, anyhow, UK. Um, <laughs> uh, I probably get some reaction here, and I probably have a few of you that would contest that. And uh, things like that. Uh, so we, we have we, we have the ability to talk about you know things we care about. You can talk about your favorite vacation spot. You can talk about your favorite hobby. But I just don't know how to talk. I just can't talk to anybody about the soul. I can't talk to anybody about the Lord. We talk about all the things we care about. You know what about we say I, I just don't have time to make the Lord a priority with my kids. You know, I've got time to make sports a priority with my kids. I've got time to make vacations a priority with my kids. I've got time to make sure they get their their uh, schoolwork done and get good grades and, and all that, but I just don't have any time for spiritual things with my kids. Or I just don't have any money for the Lord. You know, sometimes we live really liberally, but we don't give very liberally. You know, does the Lord ever notice I don't have any money ever for the Lord or for spiritual things or for people that need help. But I sure do have a lot of money for my toys. And I sure do have a lot of money for all the stuff I want. But man, I don't have any money for the Lord. So he's saying, think about those things. Stop and consider your ways. Are we doing basically the same thing the Jews were doing? You know, uh, we just know I it's just not the time for, for the Lord's house. I'm sorry. We, just, we wish we could, but we can't. Thoughts and comments on all that. I just kind of played the sermon there. <laughs> what do you think? It's a good sermon. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. He doesn't really say much other than their enemies hired counselors to frustrate the work. And at that point, they stop, but we don't see them trying to do anything to fight back or to do anything about that. We don't really know what happened. 
And a lot of times, there's something that will come up that does sort of impede the progress. And it's easy to kind of use that as an excuse and make it kind of look like that was the real problem. But Haggai, the Lord through Haggai, has diagnosed the real problem. And the real problem isn't so much the opposition. The real problem is they did just, just, just didn't care that much about the Lord living with them. So I think we get more insight into the real problem here than we would have ever known from that. Good observation. Mike. It shows us that uh, the real possibility of self-deception is so easy to see weaknesses in others and what they should be doing, but somehow if our commitment isn't there, if our optimism isn't there, if our confidence isn't there in God's work, it's like, well, that these people have problems, or when we look at other people, but I think the challenge for us is not to allow ourselves to be deceived and be blind to our own weaknesses and indifference. Yeah, you're exactly right. That is so easy to do. And we just, we have those things we say that, that we think we're fine. Well, I, you, we've got this ready-made excuse, whatever, whatever it may be for you, that you kind of just always say, and that, then it's okay. And, and we'll do that. We'll all do that. You know, kind of a mental rationalization. That like, well, but, but in this case, and, and so we really need to reconsider. You know, is that really just kind of an excuse? And honestly, I mean, if we put the kind of effort into the Lord we put into the other things, would it be different? Other thoughts? All right, how about uh, 6 to 11? You have so much, and harvest is little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does does so to put them into a bag of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. You ever lived, verse 6, so much but harvest little? You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough. You put on clothing, but it's not warm enough. You earn wages, but you put it into a purse with holes in it. You ever felt like that? You know, it seems like I'm making the money, but it just keeps going out faster than I can bring it in. You know, that, that's, that's, they were feeling a lot of frustration. You know, nothing ever seemed to work out right for them. I wonder why. He says, consider your ways. That's kind of his sub-theme here. You know, think about it. And then he says, all right, verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. I love that. When, when we need to make changes, how can we really do it? You know, a lot of times we kind of come up with this thing, I need to be more spiritual. Well, does that tell you what to do? That's kind of like, you know, kind of this vague, you know, yeah, that's what I need to do, but it doesn't really tell you what to do. Break it down into the steps. What's the first step? Well, what was their first step? Go to the mountains. Second step? Get wood. Third step? Build a house. You know, that helps. Because sometimes we need to think in terms of if I'm going to go in the right direction, what's the next step I need to take? You know, if I'm right here and the goal is right here, what are the chances I'm going to jump that? I'm not going to do that. It's not going to, I can't do that. But I can take a step. That's what I need to focus on. What's the first step? Then what's the next step? Then what's the next step? Then what's the next step? And so that's exactly what Haggai does there. He breaks it down. You know, here's what you need to do. Now, they probably needed wood, not because the house was built overall of wood. There's a lot of stone in it, but the stones were there. 
the woods would have been burned that they need more of. So those are the essential steps. Now he again says, you look for much and it's nothing. You bring it home and I blow it away. Why? You know, sometimes we, we find this frustration that things just aren't going well. And we, well, what's the problem? Well, he says, actually, the problem is, you may not have known it, but it's because of my house. My house is desolate. You run each one to your own house. That's why I've done this. Have you ever wondered why do things go so badly? Could it be that God's trying to wake us up and say, hey, you need to attend to, to, to me? You know, you, you, you haven't put effort into serving me. You're extravagant with yourself and stingy with me. And so that's why God did that. Because of you, the sky withheld its due. The earth withheld its produce. I called for a drought. They were thinking, well, when really the economy comes back in and we start making some money, then we'll build the house. And really, the Lord's saying, until you build the house, the economy's going south. You know, sometimes we just got to do what we need to do for the Lord instead of waiting for everything to be just right, and then I'll be able to. Maybe things won't be right until we do the right thing for the Lord. That was their situation. Things were not going well. They needed to stop and reconsider. There's a reason they weren't going well. It's because they haven't prioritized the Lord. Thoughts and comments? Yes? I like to, uh, when you talk about making small steps, it's easier to make the small steps for large things. It's also easier, I think, for us to make an excuse when there's a large project that we have to accomplish. No, it's a small step. It's really hard to make an excuse to, oh, I can't go and grab a piece of wood. You know, it's, it's easier to say, I don't have time to rebuild the whole temple. Right. But, uh, you know, it's a lot easier to find time to do a small stuff. And you're exactly right. Uh, I think it, that, that breaking it down is, is really a helpful concept. I really like Haggai doing this here. So I think it's very helpful for us as well. What's the next step? What do I need to do now? Not what's the goal five years from now that I will never be able to get to tomorrow. That, that's going to be demoralizing. But I can do the next step tomorrow. And that's what I need. Other thoughts? Could be that some people don't feel spiritual in their life. This talks about putting forth an effort, doing some work, taking, taking those steps. Uh, you know, there's, there's probably people not here tonight that probably should be here, but they didn't make the effort to be here. Yeah, it's going to take some work. You know, sometimes, sometimes we get just discouraged and we don't feel any energy for the Lord. It just feels like we just feel drained. You ever feel just spiritually drained? What do you do in that situation? Well, the thing that gives you energy and motivation is action. When you feel just like I, I, I just don't, I don't have any. I don't have any zeal, I don't have any, any energy, do something positive for the Lord. And you think that would drain you more, but it does this the opposite. It actually gives you more energy, it gives you more zeal, gives you more excitement. Sometimes the thing to do is just to act against your feelings and start working, and before you know it, you'll be full of energy and a desire to go in the right direction. The fact that they've waited so long to rebuild the house it's almost a self-perpetuating cycle. The longer they wait, the harder it is to get started. Other thoughts? Why would somebody do 12 to 15? Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the voice words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. And Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. 
And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the twenty-fourth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Wow! This is encouraging. Look at the response. Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant of the people obeyed the Lord. They listened to Haggai and they got started building. It's amazing what a dramatic response there was to Haggai's sermon. Sometimes what's needed is somebody to just say, we need to get busy. Somebody to push us a little bit. There's, there needs to be an exhorter. And uh, this is a swift response. Within a little over three weeks, they're actually building on the temple again. Look at the response Haggai offers from the Lord. Verse 13, I am with you, declares the Lord. God wants to endorse and strengthen their work. I'm with you. You know, that's an encouragement to keep working. Uh, for the Lord when we know he's with us. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and of Joshua and the remnant of the people, and they started working. You know, God had stirred the people up back in Ezra 1 to come back to the Holy Land. Now he stirs them up to start building on the temple again. It's amazing what God could do through a prophet. You know, a prophet who preaches a simple message in 23 days, these people are working on the temple again. That, what, a, what an amazing thing. Uh, and, and, and so encouraging. That's what we need to do. When, when you haven't been doing well, and somebody says, consider your ways. Let's change. Then we determine whether or not we really are responsive to the Lord's word or not. Do we start changing? Or do we just say, well, that was a nice sermon, but... You know, that, that's when we really, the rubber meets the road. Thoughts and comments on that section? Yes? That phrase of that the Lord stirs the spirit of Jerusalem up and, and uh, uh, Joshua as well. So I, I can see here how that would be through Haggai. Um, and back in Ezra, when it says that, um, that Cyrus had his spirit stirred as well, I know that's back to Ezra, but it's, how do you think that was? That stirring was, was done. That's always kind of puzzled me. Yeah, you've got that in Ezra 1.1, that he stirred up the spirit of Cyrus to issue the proclamation. And then in one five that he stirred the spirit of the people up to go up and rebuild the house. I don't know. Uh, God has all kinds of means at his disposal. And I'm uh, reluctant to try to, uh, you know, straightjacket him. Uh, maybe Ezra himself had a part to play in that, but I don't know. Mike? Another thought we can think about is we draw strength from one another in overcoming trials and building up the world's church here around the world. But I think the most compelling promise that God makes to Haggai is he said, you know, bless this Lord, I am with you. And so, again, that gives us the greatest source of strength possible. You know, John says, greater is the one who is in you the one who's in the world, so there's nothing that the enemy can do that can hinder the work of God when we realize that his presence is with us. Amen. Very good. Other thoughts? Does the story up, it seems that that came after the people decided they wanted to do something. That they wanted to obey God, they wanted to obey the message that Haggai delivered. And God stirred them up, helped them in that uh, pursuit. It wasn't that He stirred them up when they had no willingness to do it, that He forced them to do something. They made a decision, and God helped them in that decision. Amen. I agree 100%. Yeah. Sometimes we always want to make this is it God or is it man? as if they're mutually exclusive. God does not force an unwilling subject to do anything. And. Uh, and yet, often, he, we need his strength and help to get the job done when we are willing. So it's a cooperative effect. Other thoughts? Yes? Do you think the, uh, in verse 10, 11, when he's saying, I'm going to, you know, I'll call Fridge around and, you know, you won't have success in your endeavors. Do you think that that then ties in to verse 12, where it says, and the people fear the Lord, which then ties in them responding? 
the kind of, kind of effectively things like, you know, I'll, I'll cause even more failure unless you start to change your ways. And once you start realizing why these terrible things are happening, it's great motivation. Uh, how about chapter 2, verses 1 to 9? On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord God, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with, wealth, with the wealth of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Okay, so we're a month later, a month of work on the project, and we've got a problem that Haggai tackles head on. Sometimes it's helpful just to directly acknowledge a problem and deal with it rather than trying to sweep it under the rug or something like that. Do you see what the problem was? They weren't aggressive. Yeah, because wasn't glorious. Yeah, I mean, when you compare it with Solomon's temple, this does not look like it's going to amount to much of anything. I mean, think about it. Are these poor exiles ever going to be able to match the extravagance of Solomon's temple with all the professional craftsmen and imported wood and incredible quantities of gold and all that sort of thing? You know, some of them remember the first one. And it's like, well, this is nothing. This is, this is, it's demoralizing. It seems like this is going to be such a pitiful excuse for a temple for anybody who remembered the previous one. You know, Satan likes to discourage us. Just when we have decided we're really going to start working again and doing what's right. He wants to make us feel like this is so pitiful. We just can't get anything right. Nothing works right. It's just not going to amount to anything. It's no use even trying. That's exactly what Satan wants us to think. And he's good at, at getting us to feel that way. And so we really need this because there are plenty of times when we're going to feel demoralized because what we're doing in the Lord's service doesn't seem to really accomplish anything. It doesn't seem like it's, it's really uh, very noteworthy. What's the answer that God gives? What does he tell them? Is it be strong and work that he'll be with them? Exactly. That's not easy to do. You know, to take courage and get busy and work, we have to really be tough. And we have to fight through some of that discouragement, but the encouraging point is I'll be with you. You just keep going. You keep working, and I will be with you. He's in command of every situation. He is the Lord of hosts. His spirit will abide in their midst. Don't worry about it. You just work. And then he says, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. When, when God comes on the scene, things get pretty much shaken up. Do you remember the first time God came down and everything got shaken? Where was that? Mount Sinai. Whoa, that was quite an experience. And God's going to come again, and this time it's not going to be one mountain only, it's going to be everything. And I'll shake all the nations. 
And they'll come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory. God's going to shake loose the wealth of the nations. And they're not going to have any lack. This is not going to be some poor, pitiful excuse for a house of God. He says, the silver is mine, and the gold is mine. You know, the Lord's never short of funds. He has plenty. And when he wants to provide us, us with them, he can easily do that. And then he says, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. Who would have ever thought that? You look at this house they're building, Joshua and Zerubbabel and all that, he says it's going to be ultimately more glorious than Solomon's temple. No way. How could God cause that to happen? That's a bit of a uh, challenging text to understand. I don't think here that he's trying to say that the temple they build will somehow suddenly get more silver and gold in it than Solomon's temple had. Or that it's going to become a greater architectural wonder or whatever. I don't think that's really his point. I think he's saying that what they're doing is going to lead to a much more glorious temple. Now, what makes the temple the temple and not just an ordinary building? So, what was the ultimate temple on the earth? Jesus. And Jesus was way more glorious than Solomon's temple. I think this is ultimately fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. I think he's, he's saying that you just keep working. And I'm going to make you a glorious temple like you've never seen before. This is going to be better than any temple there's ever been. That, that temple of Solomon is nothing compared to what this temple is going to become by God's power and by God's grace. So I really think that he's going beyond the physical temple here to talk about Jesus as the temple. You remember Jesus did that in passages like John 2, and rightly so because God was dwelling in him. Now, think about some applications for us. Are there any times that our work for the Lord just doesn't seem very impressive? It just doesn't seem like we're really accomplishing anything. We work hard and nothing really happens, nothing worthwhile in the Lord's service. You think about 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the church as the temple of God. Are there times we work and we try to build up brethren? We try to help the church be stronger and grow? And the more we work, the worse it gets. And it just seems like anything we do just doesn't have any effect at all. Our bodies attempt in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And as we work to grow in the Lord and let the Lord live in us more and more, does that ever seem like we just can't accomplish anything? We never really, we never really amount to anything in the Lord's service. Remember the parable Jesus told about the mustard seed? You know, God is the God of the mustard seed. He's the God who can take the little, small, feeble efforts we make and multiply them and make something out of them. So I think his lesson for us is when we feel demoralized because it seems like we're not accomplishing anything, well, it's not going to be us anyway. God's got all the funds. He's got all the resources. And he can, he can come in and glorify what we do and who we are by dwelling in us. And so we, we've got to quit trying to evaluate the results and just do what the Lord says and serve him and trust that he will grow that mustard seed. Trust that he will glorify his death. There's, there's moments when all of God's servants have been so discouraged. Remember Elijah? You know, he thought with that victory on Mount Carmel, he really had something. You know, they killed the prophets of Baal, and, and Matt, he's got a religious revival on his mind. And then Jezebel threatens to kill him by that time tomorrow, and he sees nothing's really changed, and nobody cares, and he goes AWOL, and I'm the only one left. And, and God says, you know, I don't just work in dramatic ways. He showed them the earthquake and the fire and all that, the wind. And then he heard this gentle breeze. And, and God's saying, sometimes you don't notice what I'm doing. Sometimes I don't do the dramatic things. But I'm working. 
and they're still the 7,000 that haven't bowed their knee, they'll go back and work for you. Here's, there's a job that I got for you. Just, you know, there are plenty of times when it's, it seems like everything we do doesn't amount to anything. <coughs> but just do the work. God will be with us. He will glorify His work. And, and so I think that's a really encouraging passage. Thoughts and comments on all that. I think it's good that young parents hear that story too, that lesson that it seems that all their work is not doing any good. Just to keep at it, keep raising their children in the Lord. And what will be good. Amen. Yeah, and even parents who've already raised their children. I I remember reading something. Um, when when I was very concerned about one of my children. And it was an article by Bill Hall and he basically said in the article to parents who may raise children that aren't doing that you may not be able to have an impact on your own children, but you may be able to help somebody else's children, and God loves them too. You know, sometimes the work I want to do doesn't seem at the moment to be profitable, but there's other works for the Lord that will be profitable. Maybe somebody else will be able to help mine, and I can help someone else's. We just need to keep working and keep focused on what the Lord has for us to do, whether it seems like it's accomplishing anything or not. He'll take care of the inquiries. Other thoughts? You know, in verse 5, he says, do not fear. And I think that is such an important thing because fear is so immobilizing. It is. And so that is something, fear not, fear not, fear not. We hear that throughout the Bible because that is... And the key is, I am with you. There's no reason to fear when we have God with us. He will take care of you. Good point. Other thoughts? Alright. I I was going to say, I definitely, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. The, The concept of just trusting that doing good and serving God is making a difference. We don't see necessarily always a short-term result. And there's many times that that I've said something to somebody that um, was maybe older and, and it was maybe 20 years ago, they said something to me that made a difference. And maybe I mentioned it to them like, you know, you said something a long time ago and, and it really stuck with me. A couple times they didn't even remember saying it. You know, they don't even remember that they did say it. It was 20 years ago and it was something that really meant something to me and and it made a difference. And so there's things like that that are going on all the time. Absolutely. The Lord's in charge. He will bring forth the fruit. And we just got to trust Him. And, and, and He knows what He's doing. He knows what He wants us to do. Let's do the work, and the Lord will glorify us. Right. I think just a phrase that describes what everybody's been talking about here is just our job is to plant the seed. The seed is, it is full of power, more than we can even imagine. And even in raising children and not sure how to do it, really plant that seed early and often. And 25 years later, they say, you know, what you said, Dad, really did make a difference. It took all those years to learn to say that. That's why I say plant the seed and let God's word work on that person. Amen. Great. Yep. The power is definitely in, in God. It's really encouraging to all of us who aren't the most talented people around, which would be probably all of us. That God is the God of the widow's, widow's mind. That He would name the hospital wing after the person that gave the most based on how little they had. We as men have to name hospital wings after the person that actually gave the most as far as money goes. We, because we need money. God has everything. So He can evaluate us strictly on if we put our heart in it where our motive's right, are we trying to do the right thing? Are we planting the seed? Are we saying the small thing to a young person that might make a difference to them uh, that that doesn't take some great talent to do, that takes a heart that's willing to do it? God evaluates based on that because he's the God of eternity that has all the power. Men can't evaluate that way in general and don't. We actually do look at the quantity of what's given because we feel like we have to. But God never feels like he has to, and he never does. And that's really encouraging. If I want to teach a Bible class, 
if I have any talent whatsoever to do it, God wants me to do it. And I don't have to be the best at it for Him to get great results. I don't have to be the best preacher for Him to get great results. I don't have to be the best songwriter, the best. You don't have to be the best mother for, for Him to get great results. He cares about are you putting your heart in it, and He'll get the great results. He chose David to fight Goliath. Very good. Good thoughts, good comments. Uh, let's go and take a 10 minute break or so, just about to do whatever. We will stop at least by 9, maybe a little bit before, so that kind of tells you where we're going. Uh, but we'll take a short break here, and then we'll come back and keep working on Would somebody read 10 to 14? because it was just making everything they did dirty. Think about our lives. You know, I think we get too complacent about just doing some of God's will. We think that if we do some things, that God will accept us. But when we're neglecting the Lord in other areas, He considers even the things we do good to be unclean. You know, that's kind of frightening. Because a lot of times we think, well, at least I'm doing good in this. You know, he'd be happy about that. But really it's not. You know, they have a term in Brazil called the, the middle term. And, and it means, you know, just doing things halfway. 
doing things halfway. You know, you, it doesn't count. You know, um, think about what if you uh, what if you decided as a married man you were going to spend spend a couple nights a week with some other woman, but the rest of the time you were going to be faithful to your wife. Would she take that okay? What if she decided that? <laughs> you know, we don't we don't really take that. Well, the rest of the time I'm totally faithful to her. <laughs> well, those couple nights a week you're not there. That counts for something. You know, that really kind of taints anything else. You know, when we're not really faithful to God all the time, that partial unfaithfulness corrupts the rest of it. That's why things don't go well. You know, that's why they're having this drought and all these bad things happening, because really what they are doing in not rebuilding the temple was really making everything else impure and unclean. When things don't go well spiritually, you know, when we fail in the battle against sin, but we're like, but I said my prayers, and I did my Bible, we don't know what happened. You know, we can't just do certain things and think, well, everything will be fine. God wants us to be really committed to Him all the way through. So this is really saying uncleanness. Some areas of our life that we're not really serving the Lord will just take the whole rest of it. And it really invalidates what I do. That's a pretty serious thing. But he's really explaining why they've been able to do some right things that it still haven't counted. Comments and thoughts? So we need to think about that. And if you're one of these kind of people that like, well, I know I'm not serving the Lord here, but I'm, I'm doing pretty good in some other things. Well, you can't, you can't just do it that way. Why aren't you serving the God here? You got to do what's right across the board. It's like you know, um, you remember that passage in James chapter two, uh, where in James two he says in uh, verse uh, eleven, "For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder." Now, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So you kill somebody, but then you say. But I never cheated on my wife. Well, that's wonderful. But you killed somebody. You know, you can't exactly use the fact that you haven't cheated on your wife to excuse the murder. And, and so that's the idea of this. You know, when we don't care about rebuilding the house of God, then really we're, 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 we're unclean and it makes everything else we do unclean. That's the, that's the principle. That's the concept. Pretty powerful. And kind of frightening if we've been trying to just kind of limp along, not really doing everything right, but thinking, well, I'll do enough to get by. Anything you want to say? Yes? It really also ties back into chapter 1, verse 2, where you talk about an unwilling heart. You're always trying to make excuses. It is. Okay, how about uh, 15 to 19? But now, if you consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to uh, a grain heap of twenty measures, it would be only ten. And when one came to uh, the wine bath to draw fifty measures, it would only be twenty. I smote you with every work of your hands, with blasting wind, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. Do consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive oil? It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. Okay. So, he says that things have not gone well. God had been punishing them, and they hadn't been returning. God had smitten them with the blasting wind and the mildew and the hail, and they didn't come back. But now that they have gotten started rebuilding the temple, he said, from this day onward, the 24th day of the ninth month, from this day onward, I will bless you. Now that they have returned to a God-centered life, God marks the date on the calendar. He said, this is the day that I'm going to start turning things around. This is the day when I give the rain back. This is the day when I'm really going to start blessing you again. This is before the harvest. 
But God's already promising the results. A new era of blessing is on the horizon. They need to seek the Lord. You know, they, they're going to be, the, the, what they're planting will bear fruit. Now there's always a delay. You start seeking the Lord and he says, okay, from this day onward, everything you plant will, will do well. It's still going to be a while before the harvest comes. But God has already changed what he's doing and the harvest will come. So he's giving them reassurance and encouragement now that they're doing the right thing. God says, I'm, I'm going into blessing mode now. Starting on this very day, you can mark it down. From here on out, I will bless the seed that you plant. Thoughts and comments? Yes, comment. There's a couple times in Haggai where he's saying that something bad is happening specifically because of the Lord's actions. And what do you think about groups like the Westboro Baptist Church that do similar things where they see a calamity or a tragedy or some something that we would view as a bad thing that happens and they say that's God's hand working there. I don't know anything about that church, but but you know, I think that we need to think through the whole message of Scripture. There are a lot of times when catastrophes and calamities and, you know, life problems are a result of sin. There are other times when they're not, right? So, you know, what about Job? It was because he'd sinned so much that all that happened to him, right? No. In that case, it was not. It isn't always. So, we don't have a prophet here that's going to tell us exactly what each thing that happens means. I think it's wise for us to consider the possibility. When, when bad things happen, when things are going south, it's wise for us to think, is it possible that God is trying to get my attention? Is God punishing because I'm not doing the right thing? But it may not be. It may be God is letting Satan you know, work on me because he's using me as exhibit A of somebody who's willing to serve him no matter what. You know, it could be just the opposite. So we don't have a way of, of knowing that other than just analyzing. Have we done wrong? Do we need to repent of something? If so, then let's take that as motivation at any rate. If not, then let's keep serving the Lord and the Lord will take care of it. That's the only answer I know to give. I just don't think there's a way for us to be sure in any specific situation, you know, what God meant by what happened. Yes? I think this little set of verses is very important for speaking to a, cop, to a human tendency. They spent 15 years knocking off days on the calendar, creating the problem, but then we get discouraged and give up after, you know, the first one or two attempts or after the very first disappointing. And why well, didn't get anything out of that one? Yeah. And yeah. then we're, and like, look, it took you this amount of time to create the problem. Are you willing to work an equal amount of time to try to get out of it? Yes. Yeah, very good point. That's exactly right. <laughs> that, you know, it's not just immediate that we have these wonderful results. Other thoughts? Yes. There's uh, there's a couple of words in the American Standard, uh, well, a couple of verses where the word is consider. Yes. Uh, verse 15, but now do consider from this day on. Uh, verse 18, consider from this day onward. The, the, the literal translation for that is set your heart or arrange your heart. Um, and I think that speaks to we can we can do this academically, um, but don't really feel it. And God wants us to feel it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he wants us to take it to heart. You know, really, really give serious thought and reevaluate. Kurt, I agree with I agree with your comment about taking hold by your scripture. I think what you said is exactly right. It may be also helpful to remember that the Jews' ability to stay in the land and be blessed in the land was always contingent upon their obedience. Yes. You know, that was told them from day one. 
so it should, they knew better. It should be able to interpret why they Good point. Yes, God had been specific even in the blessings and the cursings as to what he was going to do if they wanted to make it. Other thoughts? 20 to 23. And again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to the rebel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride in them. The horses and the riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you to Jerusalem, my servant, the son of Shiltel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So, he, the Lord speaks finally, uh, this time to Haggai, saying to tell Zerubbabel the governor he was going to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the kingdoms and the power of the nations and all their strength. God is going to bring down the world empires. You know, he's going to bring down the sinful nations. He can shake things up whenever he chooses. But the remarkable part of this is verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. I don't know how many of you remember Jeremiah 22. But look at Jeremiah 22 a minute. This is an amazing passage. Jeremiah 22. It's a passage that talks about the last few kings of Israel, of Judah. I'm preaching through Jeremiah at home. We just did Jeremiah 22. And uh, he talks about the last legitimate king. Coniah, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin. That's all the same person. And look at what he says in verse 24. Jeremiah 22, 24. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kuniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I will pull you off, and I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life, yes, into the hand of those whom you dread, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans, I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you will die. And further he said in verse 30, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper, sitting on the throne of David or ruling in heaven Judah. Even though Coniah were my signet ring, I'm going to yank him off and kick him out, and he's going to be kicked out into a foreign country where he's going to die, and none of his descendants will ever again prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now, the next and last king was not Jeconiah's son. The last king Babylon appointed themselves, and it was Jeconiah's uncle, Mattaniah, whose name was changed to Zedekiah. So this was the end of the line. No more in Jeconiah's line. Now, you got that? Jeconiah, even if you're my signet ring, I'm kicking you out, and it's the end of the line. Nobody else is blessed in your lineage. Now keep your finger in Haggai, and come over to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 sheds a new light on all this. Matthew 1 verse 12. This is the genealogy of Jesus. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and he became the father of the father of the father of the father of the father, down to Jesus. Now, do you see what's happening right here? After God told Jeconiah, you can be my signet ring, I'm yanking you off, I'm throwing you out, and I have no more business with you or your family. He tells his grandson... Haggai 2.23, Zerubbabel, I'm going to make you like a signet ring, for I've chosen you. And he made Zerubbabel's great, 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 whatever grandson, the Messiah, the king, who was ruling 
What you see in that is the incredible mercy of God. He reverses the sentence against Jeconiah, and he restores his lineage, and he, he he's the one that leads to Christ. This is a passage that primarily when he says this is Zerubbabel, it's a reference to Zerubbabel's great-great-whatever son, Jesus. In his descendants, he is going to be like a signet ring. He is chosen and he will reign again. So it's amazing how God reverses the sentence because of his grace and mercy. And in two generations, he's telling Zerubbabel, you're my signet ring. And he's giving his lineage again, the throne in the person of Jesus. I, the grace of God is incredible. You know, if you just look at the Bible as a whole, which is easier to explain? The love of God or the wrath of God? The wrath of God. Absolutely. Wrath of God makes perfect sense. As messed up as we are and as ungrateful and unfaithful and rebellious as we are, if he wiped us all out tomorrow, we would have no complaint coming. It would be perfectly understandable. What's amazing and hard to explain is the grace and mercy of love of God. How does he do that? And you see that in passages like this. The incredible love and mercy of God. Haggai ends with a prophecy that has his golden Jesus. He would become the signet ring. He would become the Messiah, the king, reigning on David's throne. God's reversing the Jeremiah warning. Thoughts and comments? All right. Well, there were two prophets that stirred up the people. 